0: Brothers and sisters, the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Let's turn over again, keep going, Uh, in your Bible, if you have your Bible out in front of you, to Acts chapter 25. I should have mentioned, uh, thank thank you to all of you who responded to my uh, little email. Uh, If you didn't get an email from me, uh, you can still let me know, Uh, just let me know in person. Uh, I asked the church for some feedback on what to to preach through next, and so uh, if you'd like to... uh, at least uh, have me consider uh, something uh, after Acts, just uh, let me know. So we have four chapters to go, as you note here, chapter 25 through 28, so four more Sundays, uh, Lord willing, we'll pick up something new uh, in about a month or so. So Acts 25, here the apostle uh, is continuing from Jerusalem uh, he's made his way to Jerusalem and now he's making his way to Rome and he's in Caesarea here, the capital city of the Roman province of Judea. Jerusalem was the religious capital uh, for the Jews, but uh, Caesarea, the city of Caesar, was uh, the capital city of the Roman province. And so he's there uh, and he's, he's, uh, on, he's been on trial before uh, the Sanhedrin. He's been on trial before, or at least inquired about, before the Roman governor of Judea, uh, Felix. And now the governor of that same region two years later, uh, is Festus. Chapter 25, let's uh, begin reading at verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, Festus, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, so to bring him back because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If I if then I am a wrongdoer and have commend, committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus when he had conferred with his council answered, "To Caesar you have appealed." To Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, king, he's the king of uh, a certain region uh, amongst the Jews, uh, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, Caesar, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, You see, this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that After we had examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And loved ones, so all these words, God's people say. So here we go again with Paul rejoicing in his sufferings for Jesus Christ. From chapter 24 to chapter 25 now, it's been two years, you noticed that. At the end of chapter 24, uh, we read there last Sunday, verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, uh, and so forth. He left Paul in prison. It's been two years since Paul was brought down from Jerusalem to Caesarea uh, to be tried, and uh, what he thought was going to be a speedy trial, Uh, but nonetheless, it's been two years. And he's suffering and he's rejoicing because he suffers for Jesus. Uh, Two years after being in prison by the governor of Judea, Felix. Recall that I mentioned last Sunday that Felix was a former slave and he was known for being very, very ruthless in his dealings with everybody around him, especially with the Jews. His term as... The the Latin or the Roman term was procurator, the the governor. His term ended, uh, and this Portius Festus, we'll just call him Festus, succeeded him. We see that again at the end of chapter 24. Our text picks up three days. So it's two years after, uh, but now it's three days after Festus arrived in the province. Uh, In 60 A.D., Nero, Caesar, recalled Felix back to Rome because the Jews had written up a complaint against him that he was using the Roman military uh, in various reprisals against the Jews, and it was causing the Jews, of course, to have great unrest uh, and to be stirred up, and so Rome, of course, wanted its Pax Romana, its peace of the Roman Empire, and so Felix was recalled back to Rome, and in his place, this Festus was put as the new governor. And so he arrives in the province of Judea to take up his duties as governor there in verse number one. Uh, His first trip of provincial business was to go up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Just like uh, in our country, when a president takes office, there's always some first trip that the president takes, and it's always a, a biggie, isn't it, on, on the schedule, you know, where is he going to go, or, or she perhaps uh, someday, uh, where is the president going to go? Uh, the first trip is a big one, uh, usually to meet with some ally and, and, to, and to show a show, uh, uh, a show of strength. And so his first business trip uh, uh, as a head of state was to go to Jerusalem from Caesarea, the capital of the Judean province of the Romans to the capital of the Jewish uh, province uh, or territory of Judea. And, we, and uh, we read that just as with Felix, so too with Festus. Notice there, verse 2. The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And notice again, as with Felix... Uh, they played this political pay-for-play scheme with him. Verse two and three. Verses two and three. If you grant us this favor, we'll support you. That's that's the effect. Uh, you know, if if you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. If you help us out this time, we surely will show up at the polls for you next time. We read that they urged him, verses 2 and 3, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. Remember when when, when Paul was taken by Felix two years ago in our story, uh, there was a plot against him. And that plot was discovered by Paul's niece and she told it to to the tribune, Claudius Lysias, Uh, And do you remember about how many Roman soldiers accompanied just one Apostle Paul from Jerusalem down to Caesarea? Like about about half of a thousand, like 500-ish or so. He had a thousand soldiers at at his disposal, and he sends half of them to protect just one man. That was a a big show of strength uh, to show the Jews, uh, don't mess around with uh, with our prisoners. And so they're doing the same thing here. They're planning the same thing. Again, verse 3 says, they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now, I've I mentioned before the irony here of the leaders of the Jewish people, the leaders of the Jewish people, uh, those who upheld the law and the, and the strict traditions of our fathers, and that law of God that said, and that says so strictly even to us, Thou shalt not murder. And those who were, were known for their uprightness to the law, remember, Paul described himself as a Pharisee in Philippians 3 as, as to the law, blameless. That's what Pharisees thought of themselves, blameless. The law says, Do this and don't do that. And we follow the straight and narrow path. We are blameless. But those who were supposed to uphold that law. Thou shalt not murder. What are they doing? They're plotting to murder this Paul. So Festus said when he went back to Caesarea, the Jews could send their men of authority, verse 5, to go down with me and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him about a week or so later Luke records that as 8 or 10 days and uh, I would I would just say as an aside this again is another evidence to us of the authority and the inspiration of the holy scriptures uh because Paul because Luke as the recorder the reporter uh he's giving the honest assessment of those that he interviewed uh, he wasn't there for every single event, and so he had to interview others. And, and some said it was about eight days, you know, a little bit more than a week, you know, no more than ten days. And so he records that accurately and honestly uh, to us. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a, a fairy story, uh, as uh, Tolkien described uh, myths and, and fairy tales. This is not just a, a pie in the sky religious text. It's an honest text. It tells us, uh, you know, according to the best evidence, the best witnesses, it was somewhere between eight and ten days. Uh, And so, you know, roughly a week, week and a half or so, uh, Festus makes his way back down to his capital, uh, to his uh, fortress, to his soldiers, to his protection, to his lavish lifestyle. He took a seat on the tribunal, we read there, uh, verse 6, and he orders Paul to be brought to him. And the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, notice notice their posture, they're, they're standing around Paul, like a mob, And they are bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Just like with Jesus, they they brought their supposed evidence and their supposed witnesses, and one accused this, and, and one said that. They couldn't get their story straight. According to verse 15, they were seeking out from Festus, the Roman governor, a sentence of condemnation. Remember from our sermons. Way back when in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Roman law said that only the Romans could execute criminals. Only the Romans had the power of the state uh, to execute and punish criminals. So capital punishment was something that the Romans alone had. The law of God said in the Old Testament that the Jews were to stone to death and put to death those who had broken the laws. But they didn't have that power anymore. And so that's why they came to Pontius Pilate, seeking him uh, to condemn Jesus. And the same thing here. They don't have that power uh, to stone. Uh, And so they take it upon themselves to come to the Roman power and and to ask Festus for a, a sentence of condemnatio, as the Latin uh, text says in, in, the, in the Vulgate, a, a sentence of condemnation. Uh, according to, the, to verse four, 24, the whole Jewish people, both in Jerusalem and Caesarea, they were shouting that he ought not to live any longer. So much for thou shalt not murder. Now notice the response, Paul here, verse 8. Uh, Paul argued in his defense. This is now his fourth defense, his Fourth apologia, his fourth legal uh, 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 declaration of evidence and and rebuttal of the evidence against him. Why he is innocent. Then he summarizes that, or Luke summarizes what Paul says in verse 8, neither against the law of the Jews, that's what they were saying about him, recall, that he was violating the law of God, nor against the temple, they had said that that he had brought a Gentile and defiled the temple, nor against Caesar. He's now in front of a a Roman governor, and so he has to defend himself as well against Caesar. Uh, Have I committed any offense? There's no evidence. They bring their best and their brightest. We saw last Sunday, two years before, they had hired uh, the great rhetorician Tertullus to come, and, and he tried to get into the good graces of Felix, and he tried to inflame his passions, but he had no evidence. And the same here, they, they surround him with lawyers and, ev- and, and, and scribes and all the laws and all the traditions and all the, and all the evidence and all the witnesses that they supposedly had, but nothing would stick. And so Paul says, I have not violated the laws of God, the temple of the Jews, nor Caesar's laws either. But Festus, like Felix, really wasn't out for the truth. He wasn't looking for truth and justice, but he tried to find a way to grant the Jews a favor. You know, he, Again, he had gone to their capital. The first act of his governorship, his first sort of state trip, was to go there and to meet with their leaders. And he wanted to curry favor with them. He didn't want to have any uprisings. Felix was recalled to Rome because there were uprisings. There was no peace in Judea, and Festus doesn't want that. This is a cash cow to him. This is a place where he can, he can get his taxes, and he can, he can send some off to, to Caesar. But as we all know, the Romans were, were great at skimming off the top, and so they would always raise taxes to, to give Caesar what he uh, was due. But they always raised taxes, and they skimmed off the top. From the lowest tax collector, like Levi, all the way to the governor. They were all skimming up the top. And they wanted wanted to keep that gravy train flowing, as we say. He wasn't out for truth and justice. He wanted to grant grant the Jews a favor. And so he asked Paul if he wanted to be tried in Jerusalem, verse 9. But why would Paul want to subject himself to a kangaroo court? He hadn't broken any Jewish religious laws... Because of that, he also insists here that this was a civil, a Roman civil matter. I've not broken religious laws, so they have no jurisdiction over me. And I've not broken any Roman laws. This is a civil matter that you, governor, have jurisdiction over. And so you see there in verse number 11, he says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Roman law had, had this, uh, we might say it's sort of like an escape clause in the law, a loophole in the law. It was for all Roman citizens, anywhere in the empire, any Roman citizen who was accused of anything, whether, that, whether they were innocent or guilty, doesn't matter, they, they had the right to make final appeal. To Caesar, I appeal to Caesar. Provocatio ad Caesarum. I appeal to Caesar." That was the Roman law. Any citizen before a verdict was rendered, could it say, "I appeal to Caesar to have the verdict rendered by Caesar. Now, of course, if you were lying and you really were guilty, I mean, it was going to be found out, and you'd probably mercilessly executed on the spot. But you had that right. I appeal to Caesar. And so Festus's bluff was called, and he relents in verse number 12. And so the story shifts then to King Agrippa. Uh, this is Herod Agrippa II. You see uh, him mentioned there uh, in our story, verse number 13. Herod Agrippa II. Uh, he is the he's the great grandson of Herod the Great from the story of the Gospels, the Herod the Great, who was known for uh, that decree to have all male Hebrew children two years and below put to death. So he that's his great-grandfather. Uh, he is also the son of Herod Agrippa I, the Herod Agrippa that we've read about in Acts chapter 12, who was infamous in the story of Acts for putting to death the Apostle James. And so he comes from a line of kings and he comes from a line of unjust kings as well. So he comes, does King Agrippa. Uh, He brings his, uh, we know from history that Bernice, this is his sister, uh, they came to Caesarea to visit and to greet Festus as the new governor. After a few days, Festus mentions Paul's case. You see that there in verses 13 to 21, a little conversation that goes on. And notice that when he admits in, uh, notice what he admits in private, uh, verses 18 and 19, they brought no charge in his case of such evils. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. When Paul was mobbed in the temple, back in chapter 21, and when he was arrested and then brought and hauled before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, in chapter 22, what was the central thing that he said he was on trial for, he was being accused of? The resurrection. The, resurrection. the hope of the resurrection. The hope of our fathers. The hope that God gave to our people throughout the scriptures. I am on trial. I am being accused Because of the hope of the resurrection. The centrality we've seen in the book of Acts so far, and we're going to keep seeing, the centrality in Paul's mind of the resurrection. This is why he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection is of first importance. I deliver to you the things of first importance the gospel itself is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Hebrew scriptures the resurrection is central to him and even the governor Felix and then now Festus recognizes this this is the debate about their own religion and about this certain Jesus that, that is dead but Paul said he is still alive, or he's now alive. This intrigued Herod Agrippa II. He asked to hear Paul, and Festus promised to, do, to, do that, uh, to, to, to give him that favor the next day, verse 22. And so, in the presence of the king, King Agrippa, who entered with great pomp, with the military tribunes, verse 23, and the prominent men of the city, this, this great uh, this great entourage and this, this great procession. Festus publicly states in verse 25, I have found that he had done nothing deserving death. So you see what Luke is doing, the author. He's writing, obviously writing in such a way as to show, that, uh, to, show to whomever reads his Acts, his, his book here, whoever reads these Acts, He wants them to know that Christianity, the the way, as it's been been called, following Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah, is the true religion. That the leadership of the Jews, they were the violent instigators and violators of the various laws of the Jews, let alone the laws of murder amongst the Romans. And that even the Romans, the pagan Romans, the unclean Gentiles, they acknowledged the innocence of Paul. And so in restating the story here, we come to a little summary of what Paul has been experiencing and what Luke has been writing throughout the book of Acts so far and we'll see from some other scriptures. I want you to see here a little summary summary theology of suffering what can we learn from paul's sufferings throughout the book of acts what can we learn from the church in the book of acts and its suffering what can we learn first of all the big question is always asked throughout scripture and we see something of that here why do we suffer if we are righteous paul was innocent the governor himself declared it in public before the king of the Jews. Why do, this, why do we suffer if we are righteous? If you have not read the Psalms lately, you'll see that all throughout. Why do the righteous suffer if they are on the side of God? Well, I want you to see there, Just I'm going to give you three answers to that briefly. Why do we suffer as believers if we are righteous? We are righteous in Christ, first and foremost, but secondarily, we are also, uh, also, if we are innocent of particular charges. That's what's being described here. First of all, Christians suffer, dare I say, because it's the will of God. Christians suffer because it is the will of God for their lives, for our lives, too. It was for Christ. Was it God's will for Jesus Christ to suffer unjustly at the hands of wicked men? Didn't we read back in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that God Himself had predestined and foreordained the crucifixion of Jesus? Didn't we read that? It was in accordance with the foreordination and the predestination of God that He was delivered up in in the hands of wicked men. It was God's will for Jesus, the righteous one, to suffer unjustly. And it's the same with us as believers. God's will, over and over again throughout Scripture, is shown in the sufferings of his children and his people. We know that everything works according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. God works everything in the universe. He's made everything, but He also works out everything and He orchestrates everything according to the counsel of His will. As Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. As Paul has taught us in Acts 4.22, It is through, and I've been emphasizing this verse throughout Paul's sufferings, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult, Jesus said. It's easier. It's easier for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. It's through many tribulations. It's difficult but it's through those difficulties that we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, when we hear this, when we hear the natural man, the, the unregenerated human being hears this and objects, and we may even have a little a little sense of that ourselves as, as believers, as those who are simultaneously justified in Christ, yet still sinful. We might have this objection, oh, okay, but but if you're saying that if God ordained that, that, that God ordains suffering, and if it's true that God ordains suffering, then that means that we should just let go and sit back and let God, right? I mean, if God ordained the crucifixion of Jesus, and if Jesus said, if through many, or if Jesus said that in this world you're going to have many tribulations, and if Paul the Apostle said, having been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. If God works all things out, and if suffering is a part of that will of God, then does that mean that we should just sit back and, and do nothing and, and just let it, let it happen? No. But God's eternal providence, God's eternal counsel, gives our sufferings as believers meaning. They're not happenstance. They're not random. They're not just random acts of violence. They don't just happen. Bad things don't just happen to good people. That's what the world wants us to think. No, but we can say as believers, the Lord has given, the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what a believer said. Because suffering is a part of the will of God. So why do the righteous suffer? Well, it's part of God's will. Secondly, we suffer because it patterns our lives after Jesus' life. It patterns our lives after Jesus' life. And you've heard me mention that that scripture multiple times that uh, the student is not greater than his master. If they persecute you, no. No that they first persecuted me, Jesus said. And so suffering patterns our life after Jesus' life. Again, as to many tribulations, that we must enter the king's kingdom. Jesus, the king, suffered first, and then he entered into glory. He was crucified first, and then he rose again. Hebrews 12 says it so memorably in in verses 1 and 2 uh, when it tells us that we are to look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, that's His glory, His resurrection, ascension, eternal glory, who for that joy set before Him endured the cross down here on earth, despising the shame and or but is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Suffering patterns our lives after Jesus' life. In 1 Peter 2, Peter tells ancient Christians who, had, who were being persecuted in 1 Peter 2 that we are to actually walk in the steps of Jesus. We are to follow after Jesus in his sufferings, in his shame, in his being despised. And as Romans 8 reminds us, as Paul says uh, to the Romans, uh, we, we might get to Romans here, here soon, hint, hints we might get to Romans, but in chapter 8, uh, it'll be quite a while, but he does say this, uh, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth compare, uh, comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering in this age, glory In the age to come, what do we suffer if we are righteous? It's part of God's will for us. It patterns our lives after Jesus' life. He's the Christ, He's the Messiah, He's the anointed one. We are Christians, we are little anointed ones who follow Him and who share in His anointing. But thirdly, we suffer because it's the path of sanctification. It's the path of sanctification. Listen to what Paul says again in Romans chapter number 8. We know this verse very well, don't we? We usually share this verse with our beloved brothers and sisters, family and friends when uh, they themselves are suffering or they've experienced loss of a, of a beloved loved one. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? That, isn't that a promise that you can take to, the, take to the bank? Is that promise true, brothers and sisters? Does God work all things together for good? For those who love him, who are called according to his purpose? Can I get an amen, someone? Thank you. But we, but we don't go on to the next verse. Sometimes we forget the next verse or two. He says that, and then he explains the meaning of that by giving us what we call sometimes the golden chain of salvation. He says, four. There's a little Greek conjunction, gar, which can be for or because. A, it connects what goes before with what comes after. So here's the reason why all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. But then let's know what he says about predestination. We think of predestination as God just sort of really nilly picking, picking little, uh, little ping pong balls out of a lottery. No. For those whom he foreknew, he'd loved from all of eternity, he also predestined to be, here's the purpose of predestination, to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that, even more so, He, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers, sons. We are predestined to be conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And a part of that image is that He suffered at the hands of wicked people. He suffered unjustly. He suffered injustice. He struggled. He was tempted. He was tried. He went through many tribulations in this life. And so we are to be conformed into that image of Jesus, that perfect image of God. And God, through suffering, takes us like a piece of metal. And He takes a hammer, the hammer of suffering, and he hammers us with that suffering to bang us and to beat us into that image. The image of Jesus crying. Why do the righteous suffer? It's a part of God's will. Paul has recognized that. The church in Acts has recognized that. When Paul was traveling, and he was saying that he was going to Jerusalem, and the church was begging him not to go. Remember, they sent him on a farewell, and ultimately they said this, Acts 21, verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. It's God's will. It's his will to pattern us after Jesus. It's his will to sanctify us to become like Jesus. So how should we respond to suffering? That's the second big, the second big point there on your outline. Why do the righteous suffer if they're righteous? And then what, how do we respond? Knowing that suffering is a part of God's will. It's a, it's a way in which God patterns our life after Jesus and it makes us like him in the path of sanctification, the path of holiness. So how should we respond? Well, on the one hand, on the one hand, we might have a, 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 a sense of false stability. And we might just try to be, as good Reformed Calvinists, we might try to be emotionless. We just grin and bear it. It's God's will. It's God's will. Just grin and bear it. God predestined it, that settles it. Right or wrong? But should he be emotionless about it? No. But on the other hand, there there can be a, a foundationless response in which we are all emotional about these things and we can become out of control, spinning out of control without any foundation. That's how we are not to respond. We don't just grin and bear it without any emotion. We're human beings, after all. We're made in God's image. And, but we're also not to be troubled and tossed about like the waves, full of emotion, out of control. No. How do I respond to suffering? First of all, respond with joy. Respond with joy. Didn't Jesus say that? Matthew chapter 5, I'll just read a couple of verses. You know these verses probably, the sayings at least. Blessed are those. Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad because for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Count it all joy, James 1 tells us. Count it all joy when you are persecuted. During the time of the Reformation, the, uh, there were Reformed Christians, Protestants in France, and we, they were known, and, uh, known then, and we know them today as the Huguenots. And these French Christians were utterly persecuted. August twenty fourth is, uh, which uh, w- which just was the anniversary of uh, what's called the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where across France, tens of thousands of French Christians who rejected the authority of the papacy and its system of theology and its system of salvation. Tens of thousands across in a span of a day or two were killed. But French Calvinists, if I can call them that, Huguenots, they were known through suffering because they sang psalms even unto death. There were times where the Roman Catholic authorities would take French Huguenots, French Catholic, uh, Reformed Christians, and they would uh, put them on a the rack, or they would, they would uh, torture them and try to get them to, to just say the credo, the, the Latin Apostles' Creed. And if you did that, that meant you were a good Catholic. And instead, they would sing in French the Psalms. We can be joyful because we know that even if we die... Our hope is that our bodies, like Jesus' body, too, will be resurrected on that last day. We can sing in joy. We can sing, as those French Christians sang in horrific suffering and persecution. I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. That's Psalm 16. Respond with joy. Secondly, respond by receiving the honor. The honor. It's an honor, Jesus teaches us. The New Testament teaches us. It's an honor to be publicly recognized. That's what honor is, to be publicly recognized. And to be publicly decorated. It's a way of saying that you are worthy to stand out as an example to others. That's what honor is in a public way. When Christians suffer for being Christians, they are being honored, ironically. They're being honored by God. I was reading this week uh, the account of Thomas Cranmer. He was a great... Uh, reformer of England and Thomas Cranmer uh, as he was uh, he was uh, uh, Henry VIII's archbishop and then he became Edward VI's archbishop and reformed the church but then uh, when Edward died uh, Mary came to the throne and she reinstated the Roman Catholic Church and so Cranmer was persecuted because he was the architect of reformation in in England And so uh, he, he wrote with his very own hand he wrote a recantation he under great pressure, under great duress, He was just thinking, if I can just write a few words of recanting you know, some of the things that I said as a Protestant, I'll keep my life. I, I will be able to, to live, and maybe Mary will die, and I'll get back into power. And, and so he wrote a recantation. He was, very, uh, he was famous for that, and that was, of course, publicized all across England. The great Protestant, the great Christian reformer, uh, Thomas Cranmer, has recanted his Protestant faith, and he's come back to obedience to, uh, to the Pope of Rome. Well, That didn't do the trick either because uh, they were out for blood and they were out for his blood in particular. And so he was brought then to the scaffold uh, one day uh, uh, to be denounced and to publicly uh, try to be harangued to continue uh, in this supposed newfound uh, 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 Roman Catholic faith. And then he was brought to uh, to the stake to be burned alive. Before he was burned alive, he said this. And now I come to the great thing that troubleth my conscience more than any other thing that ever I said or did in my life. And that is the setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth. And so he recounted in writing, then he publicly, to, the, to all who would hear him, he recounted his recantation, which here now I re- renounce and refuse, as things written with my hand contrary to the truth, which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death, and to save my life. And for as much as my hand, he very famously said this, for as much as my hand offended in writing, contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For if I may come to the fire, it shall be burned first. And if you know the story of Cranmer, the first thing he did when he walked up to that stake and they began the fire, was he put his hand out and he burned his hand off and then he died. His whole body was consumed. But he stuck his hand in the fire first as a way of showing that he was willing to suffer for the truth of the gospel, and he received that great honor as a martyr for the faith. Respond by receiving the honor. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Don't cower and don't hide in a corner. Receive the honor that Jesus gives to you. Third, respond with boldness. Respond with boldness. Here, here, Paul appeals to Caesar because it will take him to Rome, exactly where Jesus promised he would end up in the story of Acts. Respond with boldness. It's a mark. Suffering is a mark that the Lord is with us. Receive the honor. Respond in joy. Receive the honor respond with boldness. Christian martyrs throughout the ages have been known uh, at their time of martyrdom, whether it was beheading or at the stake or being eaten by lions or being driven through by, by, by Roman swords and so forth, uh, they were known for boldly proclaiming the gospel. And to even say to people at the moment of their death that death was their wedding day. So bold were they. Death was their wedding day because they were going to see Jesus. Fourth, respond in obedience. Respond in obedience. It's better, we've seen from Acts early, the early chapters four and five, it's better to obey God than man. It's better to obey God than man. We learn obedience as a child through discipline. When we're suffering, where are we going to turn? Where are we going to turn when we are suffering? When we are suffering as Christians, where are we going to turn? We're called to turn to Jesus. Like Stephen, as he lifted up his face and his eyes, and he he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And they saw his face like the face of an angel. We turn to Jesus. Paul describes it in in Titus 2, verse 10, uh, that we are to live a life uh, that uh, a life of good works, and our good works are the adornments of the gospel, the, uh, like beautiful clothes. We have to respond in obedience and, and put on the beautiful dress of loving God and loving neighbor as ourselves as a way of adorning the gospel. It's not just that we, say, or we, we believe things in our head, we think them in our head, we believe them in our heart, and we even say them with our lips. No, we, we live it out. Paul's doing here? Living out the faith that was delivered to him and living out his hope of resurrection. He had no fear. I appealed to Caesar. Let the Lord's will be done, the church said. And so his defense teaches us as Christians to face suffering as Christians. Because Jesus Christ is alive. Because he's alive. He gives us life in this life. And even though he might take this life, we can say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as we come to the Lord's table, it assures us this morning, you and me, it assures us that we are Jesus' people. We are his children. We belong to him. We follow in the path of his sufferings, but yet we lift up our hearts to receive Him at the right hand of God and to get a foretaste of that heavenly glory that awaits us. Go through the trials and the tribulations because through them we must enter that heavenly heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Our merciful God, our gracious God, our good God, we come to you and we ask that you would uh, fill our hearts with strength today and our conscience, Lord, uh, to keep it free from fear, that we would stand up for Jesus Christ, acknowledge him, confess his name, live for him in the midst of much, much suffering and many trials, and especially, Lord, as persecution uh, seems to slowly set in. We know that you are in control of it all, and you've put us here at, uh, uh, at this time and at this place for such a time as this to be your witnesses, to be your light in this very darkened world. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. If you turn over on the order of service for this morning, you'll find there a beautiful hymn, Here I am, Lord. As we stand, let's give the Lord praise.